Before we jump in today, I want to tell you about my self-coaching course, which will help working moms in high-stress jobs overcome self-doubt, rumination, and worry so that you can finally enjoy your career, feel confident, and find balance. I created this course about a year ago now, and it has helped so many women who are trying so hard to be good at their jobs and to be the best mom they can be and are just struggling um, because they think that they're not good enough at either job. And the best thing about this course is that it's totally self-paced. The videos are short and sweet and there's tons of activities to go along with and you can pick and choose the ones that are going to help you the most for where you're struggling right now. You will get lifetime access to the course, including any updates or anything I add in the future, and the ability to email me for email coaching for the first 30 days of your subscription. You will learn simple, actionable solutions for overcoming self-doubt. You will develop genuine and lasting confidence no matter what happens at work or how crazy your kids behave in public. And you will gain the skills to leave work at work so you can feel balanced and stop dreading your work days. So check that course out at kristenyatesdo.com forward slash course. Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to the Imposture to Unstoppable podcast, where physicians can learn how to overcome imposter syndrome and create the career of their dreams. Dr. Elizabeth Jang is a life coach and an ophthalmologist and oculoplastic surgeon. She has always had big dreams and huge goals, including climbing the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro in a snowstorm, running marathons, and traveling to over 40 countries across six continents. She thought when she finished her fellowship that life would be at its best, but what she didn't expect was to feel burnt out after less than five years in practice and then go through the COVID pandemic, which has turned out to have some hidden gifts which we will learn about in our episode today. Enjoy. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you for being here with me. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. All right. Let's jump in. I can't wait to hear all about your thoughts and feelings when it comes to imposter syndrome. Yeah. So honestly, I think I had imposter syndrome just even going to my undergrad, which sounds <laughs> ridiculous, I know. Um, but I um, I actually applied to seven uh, schools for college and I got into all of them and I was a salutatorian. So there's really no reason I should have thought that I didn't get in. But I applied early action to Caltech and I, um, I did not get in early action. I got in the normal the normal way, which, you know, is, is totally fine. But when I got to Caltech and I just realized everyone just seems so much smarter. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were so many people with like perfect SAT scores and, and it was really hard um, in the beginning. Like I, I, you know, worked hard in high school, but I really actually worried about failing classes like my freshman year. And I had just never been in that position, you know, like a bad grade was a B type of thing. So mm-hmm. Um, so, and it was actually at the point where during my freshman year, I started thinking, well, you know, maybe I should transfer, maybe I should go to one of those other schools instead. And then I thought about, well, who's going to write me a recommendation now? Like when I was in high school, like I was a star student, I had amazing recommendation letters here. I'm in these classes of 200 people because a lot of the, um, the, so all the freshmen at Caltech basically take all the same core classes and you have um, the few, like, like you have like one elective class that you might take, which is going to be like your humanities, which are small classrooms, but everything else is like a huge lecture. Like mm-hmm. everyone takes, you know, phys one, math one, chem one, 
there, there's just like a freshman curriculum. So I actually just stuck it out because I just didn't think I could get into a, a college as good as I did when I was applying from high school. Mm-hmm. And I actually ended up graduating with honors, which still kind of blows my mind, but <laughs> <laughs> things got better, obviously. Yeah. Which is typically a po- imposter syndrome, right? It's that belief that there's probably a fluke somewhere. Maybe I don't really deserve that. Not owning it, right? <laughs> right. Because in high school, you know, I, I didn't feel that way until I, I got to the college. Because in high school, like I said, I was salutatorian. I, I, I mean, I just missed valedictorian by, a, a, you know, a small amount. Um, and, you know, it was like back and forth with me and another girl for like, you know, all four years. And... You know, yeah, like I, I thought I deserved everything. So it was, it was a huge blow to, mm-hmm. you know, my 18 year old ego. And it, you know, I think it's affected me like essentially the rest of my life. Cause you know, med school is also hard to get into. I actually did an MD PhD, which I think it's probably even harder to get into. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not necessarily have proof of that, but I did do a, a MSTP program. So that's a hundred percent funded MD PhD. So um, and, you know, I applied to, I don't even remember how many med schools, and I only interviewed in a small handful of them, and I only got into two. Um, so, again, a little imposter syndrome that, mm-hmm. I mean, at least I got in. And, and you know, I did fine in medical school, obviously, but there's still that, like, oh, do I really deserve to be here? Yeah. So, I know that you're you're a coach, so I, you bet, I bet you've done this work on yourself, but what do you think was the foundation of you linking your worth to your schooling or your grades? Like, where do you think that stemmed from? Anything in particular? I think it's really deep rooted. So I'm Chinese American. My parents were um, both born in China, kind of grew up in Taiwan. My father came to the United States at age 16 and my mother came at age 21. So she came for grad school. My dad did a year of high school before starting college. Um, and, and there is a little bit of that traditional Chinese, like, you know, get good grades, do good in school. Uh, my mother always wanted me or her kids in general to be uh, physicians. And I mean, I definitely experienced some racism when I was young growing up. I, you know, distinctly remember being told, oh, you're good at math because you're Asian. Mm-hmm. And it was, no, I'm good at math because I work hard to learn it. I work mm-hmm. hard to learn all these things. It wasn't that everything necessarily came, you know, absolutely easy uh, or natural to me. I did actually have to work for my grades in high school. It wasn't like, like my husband actually was valedictorian and he did like zero work. He was mm-hmm. just like, he just knew stuff. I mean, he, I can't remember his SAT score, but it's super high. <laughs> um, and I was not that person. Like, and um, I did have to work hard for all that. So um, well, I did essentially get straight A's. Um, my high school actually had a minus as a, an actual grade, but not A plus, which always annoyed me because <laughs> there were some classes where I got that A plus and I would have liked that boost. But um, yeah, I, I think there was that need to accomplish in order to, um, you know, because my parents were always really proud of the accomplishment. and But at the same time, we always got compared to all my parents' friends' kids, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, so-and-so is going to Harvard. So-and-so is going to Stanford. And my cousins as well. Yeah, a lot of people, my uh, my cousins are, are high achieving. And a lot of my friends, my parents' friends' children also have done well for themselves. So, so and the parents, I think, all compare their kids to their friends' kids. And they always want their kids to be the best. But I think part of that, you know, comes down to like, oh, to 
it wasn't like my parents were like, we won't love you if you don't do well, mm -hmm. but there's always that, oh, we're so proud that you do well and you make them happy. Yeah. And, you know, you, you know, as a kid, I, I, I mean, I still love my parents, but, you know, as a kid, I really want to make them happy and make them yeah. proud. That made me feel good. And so getting good grades is definitely tied to that. Yeah. And I think that's a common thing that so many people experience that it's, it's kind of like this unconscious programming that I think, you know, as parents, we don't intend to do that, but it's, I think what happens is we grow up and then we think that our um, pride is um, totally only related to our achievements and not to our characteristics as human beings or our ability to listen well, or those more like intangible things that make a human being truly um, impactful. And instead where there's all these external things that we link onto because we just don't know any better. And I don't think that's by any fault of anyone. I think that's just kind of the nature of parenting and um, living in the world right now. Yeah. So tell me about your transition. So you're um, a, a clinically clinical practice, and then you're also a life coach. So tell me about that transition for you. Yeah, so I, um, after fellowship, went to a private practice. I was there for just about three years, and I actually really enjoyed that private practice, but at some point realized that this wasn't a practice I was going to end up buying into. And since I had come to that practice just like with the idea that I was going to be partner. And uh, I, I went ahead and, and I was also the, the other big thing was I wasn't busy enough so that I knew eventually I would probably either be let go or asked to like reduce my pay or, you know, and I was hustling as well mm -hmm. in order to try to build my practice there. So I decided um, to, that I really wanted to move back home to Cleveland and a, a job actually became available at Metro Health. And so I never thought I would go work for a hospital, but I went ahead and took it. And I burned out real quick working mm -hmm. in a big hospital system. Mm -hmm. I mean, even before COVID. And then COVID hit, which it's funny, in a way, made things better because we did shut down for a while. Mm -hmm. And during that shutdown, I only worked one to two days a week. And then life was actually, even though it was like in quarantine, essentially, like just staying at home and just going out to like the park to go hiking or something, um, life was actually better. Mm. <laughs> and that's when I really started to rethink life in general. And also I think with COVID, a lot of things went online yeah. that made it accessible for everyone. And so um, I started to meet a lot of physicians online that I had never really had a lot of friends that were physicians. Like, you know, I had some friends in med school, but I didn't necessarily keep up that closely with them. Um, I mean, I was friends with my co-residents, but as an ophthalmologist, our residencies are, are fairly small. Mm -hmm. And um, so I actually have just as many like non-physician friends as I have physician friends, uh, if you just count like all my friends. And I don't necessarily have a lot of physician friends in Cleveland. In fact, I have a lot more non-physician friends in Cleveland. And um, so, and also I don't have a lot of physician friends who are doing necessarily non-physician things right. like life coaching or real estate investing or, or even into personal finance. So I really got into personal finance actually while uh, as a med student, I started mm -hmm. investing um, in stocks, uh, like actually picking individual stocks when I was in grad school. And I actually flipped two houses during grad school and got into real estate investing and, and did some other things. So I you know, didn't know any physicians doing that until COVID where mm -hmm. there were, a, I just 
discovered these online communities um, partially through uh, the Leverage and Growth Summit and then the Leverage and Growth Accelerators afterwards. And that actually uh, introduced, it. it was through that that I found out about coaching. And then I actually got coaching and it was amazing. It mm-hmm. totally changed my perspective in so many ways. And, and then I thought, well, I would actually really like to do this. Uh, so I actually think coaching has a lot of the things that I really wanted out of medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, that one-on-one connection with people, that feeling like you're really helping somebody, um, the transformation that you can get. And I love being a surgeon. I love the transformation I can give through surgery. Um, But obviously the transformation you can get in helping someone improve their life is just even more rewarding. Yeah, I think that's so true. And this is why so many physicians who get coached become coaches. And I think that's exactly why, because as physicians, so many of us go into medicine with the purpose of healing and then we become doctors and the system is the system and there's so many barriers to, to really actually just healing people and coaching is there's none of the red tape, you know, yeah. there's, no, there's none of the barriers. There's not the documenting and the hours and the bureaucracy and the C-suite, you know, there's none of that. And I think that's why so many physicians are drawn to it because we are healers and coaching heals. Yeah, I totally agree. So tell me more about, did this, these feelings of doubt or anything pop up for you as you were, as you were doing these like other non-doctor things, other things outside of clinical medicine, did any of that doubt come up? Like who am I to be doing this or anything like that? Well, for investing, I think not so much because it seemed like, well, everyone is supposed to, you know, put money in their 401k or 403b Mm -hmm. and, and so in essence, everyone is investing, whether or not they're acting like an investor or not. And so that was one place where I thought, uh, it's really just about getting yourself educated and how to do it. And even though I did do some individual stock picking, I mostly invested in mutual funds and index funds. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the, small amount of money I did in individual stock picking was more for kind of the fun of it. And my brother actually did a lot more of just actually like penny stock picking and like, you know, day trading. Whereas when I bought stocks, I really kept them for a long time. In fact, I still have several of the stocks that I bought when I was in med school. Mm-hmm. So like Starbucks was one of those stocks I bought. Nice. And it's done well. Yeah. Caffeine is a legal yeah. drug. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> so how do you deal with the self-doubt now? Because as I like to mention on the podcast, imposter syndrome and self-doubt are just normal parts of the human condition. And when we talk about overcoming self-doubt, overcoming imposter syndrome, what I like to really, what that really means is at least for me is just like turning down the volume of that voice because it still pops up when I do things that are new. Um, I just don't listen to it. I turn down the volume and I instead create my own thoughts, right? Yeah. So So tell me about what your, um, like, what do you do? What are your tricks? Yeah, so I I basically do what's called self-coaching and I coach myself. So I actually, you know, write down all my thoughts, what we call a thought download, and look at the thoughts that are essentially not serving me, like what, which, and try to think only like the thoughts that will serve me. And sometimes I'll go through some of those thoughts that are not serving me and be like, well, why am I thinking this? And basically just keep asking myself the same questions as I would ask as, um, that, you know, when I'm coaching someone else. Um, and actually, one of the suggestions I um, gotten 
um, which I now do, is using two different color pens. So like one pen is me and one pen is, you know, me as a as client and one pen is me as a coach in different colors. And just kind of go through like, okay, you know, writing down the thoughts and all the things that go along with it. And then like kind of looking at it more objectively and be like, you know, what we call not believing the story. So, well, why do you think that? And just asking why and why and why again and finding, you know, the evidence of, well, why that's really not true, you know, and trying to see like, this is just a story that's really made up. So how do you think self-doubt has kept you small? And in what ways have you changed that so that you are, you know, leaning into the, to the world's, you know, the universe's plan for you a little bit? I mean, self-doubt you know, still comes up all the time, mm-hmm. even even with coaching. So I'm still very much at the beginning of building my coaching practice. And, you know, Tony Robbins is arguably probably the most famous coach and, you mm-hmm. know, she's a multimillionaire. And Brooke Castillo of the Life Coach School, you know, she's, I can't remember, 20 some million dollars this year alone. And, you know, there are several coaches through the Life Coach School that are in, um, you know, that make more than a million a year or even more than 10 million a year. And, you know, there's that question of like, well, who am I to, mm-hmm. to be doing this coaching? Like, you know, so it just in even building the business, I've been getting obviously business coaching and doing a lot of business programs. And, I'll get, you know, one of the questions that comes up really is where do you see your business in five years? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what kind of revenues do you want? What do you kind of build? And I am still in that, you know, uh, small thinking of like, oh, I just want to coach people and I'm just doing the business so I can coach people and I just really want to be a coach. But when I think about it as a business, it's like, well, yes, this this is still a business. And the, the, the more revenue is not just about making the money, it's about how many people you're impacting, mm-hmm. right? And I do want to impact more people, right? I mean, yes, it's great to help, you know, one-on-one, but if you do want to make an impact, then you got to serve more and more people. And mm-hmm. that serving more and more people is what brings in that revenue. And of course, when, you know, someone's making a million dollars, like there's still all the overhead and now um, you have to build a team, right? You have to have staff to help you get to that point. You can hustle. They say you can hustle your way to a hundred thousand, you know, maybe you can hustle your way to 200,000, but at some point you need to have teams and systems and all that built in place. And I actually have had that entrepreneur mindset. I mean, that was part of wanting to go to private practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to have that autonomy and control over staffing and scheduling that I definitely don't have at the hospital. And so it's not that I don't think I could do it, but sometimes, you know, I, ha- I mean, this, the, the doubt still comes up, right? Yeah. I haven't done that before. And but we as physicians do lots of things that we haven't done before. I mean, even when you think about, you know, like I'm ophthalmologist and, um, you know, cataract surgery has evolved over the years. And there were people where, you know, when the newest type of cataract surgery, which was what we do now called phacoemulsification came out, you know, there were doctors who had to learn that and they were, you know, it's not like they went back to residency to learn it. They just went and to the people who kind of, you know, made the technique or watched videos or, or whatnot mm-hmm. to learn it. And so in being a physician, we constantly do have to learn how to do things that we haven't necessarily done before. Uh, but I do think as a physician, there's also a very, um, we're very risk averse in the sense that, you know, failing can mean hurting someone or injuring someone or someone doesn't heal as quickly or 
Um, then there's the the malpractice side of it. And in business, you know, you don't have those risks. And in fact, you need to keep failing in order to what they call say fail forward, right? Mm-hmm. It's all like experiment. You're just testing something and you know it either works and you get the result you want or you get the lesson that you need. That's what James Winmore uh, always says. So, yeah. you know, and since I did do that PhD, you know, thinking about it like a scientific experiment actually really helps because there were lots of times where I did do experiments and it didn't work. And so you adjust something and you try again. And so that's thinking about, okay, running the business is just like running a bunch of scientific experiments. Do something, if it doesn't work, tweak it, do it again, doesn't work. And not really thinking of it as a failure. Like when I was doing those experiments, you know, I, yeah, it didn't work, but I didn't think, oh, I failed. Right. And so bringing that thought to business, I think will really help. But there's definitely that self-doubt of like, you know, how long is it going to take to even get back my investment for my coaching certification? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you bring up a lot of really good points about just life in general. I think that the reason why I love business so much now that I'm, you know, kind of in the thick of it is if the, the growth that comes with it is, is fantastic for the reasons you mentioned, like you're learning how to fail, learning how to feel emotions that don't feel good without buffering them away. And also, I think there's so many lessons there that as a physician, when I bring back to my clinical practice, um, make me a better doctor. So I think in general, these things that you're mentioning that are so that are so useful to have in business, like it's just an experiment. I'm just trying these things out. In fact, make you not only a better human being and it have, make you help you to love yourself, but also can can make you a better doctor as well. And I think it also helps you relate to just all the different kinds of people our patients are. Yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. And it's something that you, you mentioned is, you know, we do things new every every day as a physician, really, because every patient is a new experience that you've never had before, unless it's a patient you, you know, see right, routinely, but every new patient is a new experience and we do just fine with that, right? right. So um, as we wrap up, can you, do you mind sharing where people can find you and, um, some more information about what you're doing now in practice? Oh, yeah. Um, So I'm an ophthalmologist and oculoplastic specialist, and I am actually leaving my hospital practice uh, to go. I'm joining ICE Ophthalmology. Um, My website, my coaching website is www.wealthymindsetmd.com. I also have a YouTube channel where I do uh, weekly just video clips on thoughts on coaching. The easiest way to find that is probably actually go to my website and click on the the YouTube um, link from my website. Awesome. Thank you so much for everything. Have a good night. Thank you.